Welcome back to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, the podcast that explores the world of Doctor Who collecting and merchandise and all things related to Doctor Who. Brought to you in part by Forbidden Planet and Bags Unlimited Incorporated. I am Larry Van Mersbergen, your host, and I've been collecting Doctor Who now for 41 years. And I opened the first Doctor Who store in Chicago that exclusively served Doctor Who fans in 1984. We called it Bundles from Britain, and we are mentioned in a great book called Red, White, and Who, the Story of Doctor Who in America. Bundles from Britain lives on page 384. Everybody should have this book, and you can find a convenient link to buy this book on the front page of our website at DoctorWhoCollectors.com. I just want everybody to have it. We don't earn a dime from this book. This book is a hard-working project of many friends of mine who wrote this, so be sure to give it to them. We are part of the Direction Point Doctor Who Podcast Network, and you can find some other great podcasts at directionpoint.org. If you are a Doctor Who podcaster listening to this podcast, join today, and you will join the ranks of great Doctor Who podcasters such as Time Streams, Police Box in a Junkyard, the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast, Traveling the Vortex, Doctor Who Literature, The Old Doctor Who Show, and Time Ram. For more information, go to directionpoint.org. And speaking of links, two wonderful resources that I include in every episode include Timelash.com and under that heading, the TARDIS Library. Log in to create a free account to keep track of all your media in Doctor Who. That's books, vinyl, CDs, VHS tapes, DVDs, Blu-rays, and thank you special to Dan O'Malley for putting that together. If you need to do some research on other Doctor Who items, don't forget that How's Transcendental Toy Box at DoctorWhoToyBox.co.uk is available for you for free use. David J. Howe is a great friend and a best resource for Doctor Who collectors. And of course, if you're looking for Doctor Who items at great prices, look no further than DoctorWhoStore.com. It's in the name. Alien Entertainment has what you need and is currently running sales on many items. And if you live in the Chicago suburbs, you can select free pickup from the store. And while you're there, browse their incredible selection of Doctor Who and other science fiction items. They're open Wednesday through Saturday in downtown Lombard, Illinois, and opening a new store in the north side of Chicago very soon. Go to AlienEntertainment.com for store hours and location. You can also find some more great Doctor Who items at Forbidden Planet, and you don't have to go anywhere. Just go to our website at DoctorWhoCollectors.com and select Doctor Who Merchandise Links. And don't forget, we have our own eBay store. We are selling off duplicate items in the collection to raise money to pay for the podcast. We have a lot of Target books, some hardcovers, and other great goodies. In addition to all our podcasts posted on our website, we have the complete guide to Doctor Who classic hardcovers. It is getting even more complete with prices, price guides. Uh, We track sold prices of many books, and that does affect the prices of many books out there. So uh, we list a lot of reprints that some collectors didn't even know about. Chicago TARDIS 2022 is tomorrow as of this recording. So the final guest list for the year, autograph and photographs can be purchased through Eventbrite or at the door. 
the schedule is completely final and we have that ready to go. Uh, so our guests for this year's Chicago TARDIS include Sylvester McCoy, the seventh doctor, Sophie Aldred, Ace, of course, they just appeared in Power of the Doctor, so you might want to get there to meet them and, and do a photo opportunity with both of them. Fraser Hines comes with your uh, ticket at any convention, and he's there, of course. He played Jamie in the series. Wendy Padbury, who played Zoe alongside uh, with Fraser, is there. Daisy Ashford, she is uh, plays Liz Shaw for Big Finish and happens to be the daughter of the original Liz Shaw, Carolyn John. Lauren Cornelius, our good friend here, she's playing Bodo Chaplet for Big Finish. Don't forget Jason Hay-Gallery, he's the CEO of Big Finish, so if you've got questions about Big Finish, he's the guy to talk to. Uh, added recently, Sophia Miles, the Madame de Pompadour. No snogging. Uh, Stephen Noonan, the first doctor for Big Finish. And Kevin McNally, he was Professor Jericho in Flux, and he was also Hugo Lang in The Twin Dilemma. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try this name here. Uh, Bhavnisha Parnar, Yaz's sister in the new series. And Tim Traylor, the best third doctor I've ever heard, and he does it for Big Finish. So there you go. My speaking schedule for Chicago TARDIS, I start off on Friday at noon with Introduced by Howard De Silva, Early Doctor Who Viewing Experiences. I will also, at 2 o'clock, uh, or shortly after 2 o'clock, I will be interviewing Brian Ulga, uh, Ulga um, and he's doing I Am Sonic'd Up, The Props of Doctor Who, so you'll see that, hear that interview on a future um, uh, podcast. At four o'clock, I join my good friend Tony Witt, where we talk on and off target with Doctor Who novelizations. And then uh, on Saturday, I am going to be at uh, 10 o'clock in the morning. I'm going to be at the Order Over 30 cosplay. As you know, I do cosplay the fifth doctor, and I'll be there with some very distinguished people, including fellow uh, podcaster Asad Kasugi, and uh, we'll be there with Jen Greeley. Uh, later on at 11 o'clock, that's the big event here, the Doctor Who Collector Showcase. That's my big show, and uh, that's in the secondary program room. At, immediately following that at 12 noon, I'm doing a discussion walkthrough of Tomb of the Cybermen, including a special giveaway to those who are in attendance. And then later on in the, in the day here... At 4 o'clock uh, in the gaming room, we'll be uh, doing War of the Daleks. I've got two working games, and we'll be learning how to play that classic game from 1975. And at 7 o'clock, you can check out the TARDIS 22 uh, Masquerade, which is all the uh, costume people, and I will be there for that. On Sunday, uh, you can join me in the gaming room at noon to play the Doctor Who board game from Strawberry Fair. I've got two games. I can accommodate up to seven players. At 1 o'clock, we will have convention stories of the 1980s. You remember me talking about John Pertwee in an elevator in full Wurzel gummage. Well, that's just one story uh, that we couldn't capture. So there you go. Um, at, and, of course, that completes the, uh, the, my speaking schedule. You can get the full schedule uh, at chicagotardis.com. Keep that in your bookmarks and experience the best Doctor Who convention in the Midwest, and it's happening tomorrow. Um, now, uh, what's new to the collection? I got a lot of stuff in recently, so I've got a lovely ex-library copy of Death to the Daleks in hardcover, two near-mint hardcover editions of Snake Dance and the Romans, a trump card game from 1978 inside a 2010 mini Doctor Who lunchbox. I had a little disagreement with the seller because he thought the tin was from 78 and had to explain that the neon logo wasn't around yet. I have completed my quest for both Finnish hardcovers, and so I now have a copy of The Auton Invasion. goes along with my cave monsters, so remember, I am half Finn, so that's very exciting. 
Um, I have a slightly better copy of the Talons of Wang Chang in hardcover, so watch my eBay store for the old copy. I have another inflatable movie Dalek that was open, so he will be on full display at Chicago TARDIS. A nice copy of The Abominable Snowman in hardcover. It was a great month for hardcover acquisitions. My list is getting smaller now. I found the complete collection of all Turkish Target books, all six. That includes the Cybermen, the Autumn Invasion, the Daleks, um, the Day of the Daleks, the Abominable Snowman, and uh, I can't think of the last one. Uh, so that's the, all six of those. I've got a picture of those on our Instagram page. Uh, also, the latest uh, Vinyl Who, uh, which is a complete uh, audio adaptation of the Celestial Toymaker. Good timing for that. And uh, linking narration by Peter Purvis. I also received an Ark Space DVD special edition, but I found out it's not as special as the original, as it does not include the uh, bonus material that was on the original DVD. Go figure. Um, by the way, we would love to talk with collectors. Share your story here and become a guest host of the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. Contact me for details at DoctorWhoCollectorsPodcast at gmail.com. On today's show, I continue our coverage of classic Doctor Who hardcovers with our good friend Tony Witt, the host of the Doctor Who Target Book Club. This time it's 1980, so be sure to watch the video on Patreon. Thank you to all our patrons who patronize us on Patreon. If you'd like to see the exclusive video content that we produce, just uh, go to our Patreon page and subscribe with a $15 or above. And uh, I thank all of our patrons for that. It's uh, patreon.com backslash Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. All of the video Zoom interviews we have are there for your viewing, including visuals of, of the collectibles that we show. Uh, if you choose to uh, support us elsewhere, you can do so at Podbean. So doctorcollectors.podbean.com, click become a patron, and you can support us at any level you feel comfortable. Sounds like a pledge break, but that's what it is. And of course, we are still raising money to bring Doctor Who legend Peter Purvis, who played Stephen Taylor for the first Doctor and did the linking narration on the latest Vinyl Who, uh, to be our on our podcast. Uh, the goal, of course, is seven, $271, which is exactly what their agents are asking for. So we're not trying to boost that amount. We're just trying to get to that amount. Uh, so your sponsorship would reach a lot of people since this is the highest ranking uh, guest that I would have on the podcast. So you just go to DrCollectors.com and click the donate button, the PayPal donate. It's safe and secure. And uh, make sure you enter Peter Purvis in the message so we can add you to the sponsor list. Our theme song, of course, is Who's Doctor Who, composed by Barry Mason and Les Reed, performed by Fraser Hines. Also on that recording is Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin. <laughs> Mason and Reed wrote a lot of great songs, including Love Grows As My Rosemary Goes, and It's Not Unusual. But, unfortunately, this one was never a big hit. You can meet Fraser at Chicago TARDIS. You can hear this podcast, of course, anywhere you get your podcasts, including Amazon Music, YouTube, Audible, Podchaser, Podtail, Podbean, and many more, wherever you get yours. We are a Direction Point Network podcast. You can get this podcast and many others at directionpoint.org. After a quick break, we will have collection protection, our main story, and the most outrageous offer. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Rupert Booth. I am known as Paul Ferry. And my name is Barry Williams. Together, we host Time Ram. Time Ram's a cruel mistress. It's a random number generator. That also. We roll a number from 1 to 13, and that's our doctor. Then 1 to 300 for the story, and then we ram them together. Even if it doesn't make sense. 
cruel, I tell you. Time Round, putting the wrong doctors in the wrong stories, so you don't have to. You're listening to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. We are going on a journey, a very long journey, through the world of the Target novelizations and publication order. Every week, we are looking at a new book, talking about Terrace Dix, Malcolm Hulk, and all our Doctor Who novelization friends. Whatever you do, keep turning the pages. This is Jason Miller of the Doctor Who Literature Podcast, a member of the Direction Point Podcast Network, and you are listening to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. Keep collecting. Are you ready to travel through time with us? Then check out Traveling the Vortex, a Doctor Who podcast. For nearly seven years and more than 500 episodes, we've traveled from one end of the Vortex to the other, making different stops with different doctors, reviewing everything from TV stories to audio plays, from books to comics, and more. Sean, Keith, and Glenn take you on a journey through 50-plus years of Doctor Who episodes and spinoff materials. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, so be sure to check us out. And now, we're a proud member of Direction Point, a Doctor Who podcast network. You're listening to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. Keep collecting. Sad, really, isn't it? People spend all that time making nice things, and other people come along and break them. And now it's time for Collection Protection. Collection Protection is brought to you by Bags Unlimited Incorporated. Bagsunlimited.com or 1-800-767-2247. If you do call, just happen to let them know that you heard this on the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. I want to talk about some new products that have come out in the last couple weeks. Uh, First of all, under audio, they have an audio cassette case now that can hold one tape. A lot of people were looking for replacement cases for their old cassettes, and now they have them. Under CDs, uh, they have also now a CD sleeve to fit CD digipack and gatefold jackets. That's important for some of your big finish. Uh, They have those um, with a resealable flap. And they're also they're they're also on sale too, so you've got twenty percent off on some of these uh, CD sleeve to fit uh, with three mil, one and a half mil, and uh, one and a half mil jackets. In uh, in storage products for peer- periodicals, of course, they've come up. If you happen to be a, a retailer and you're looking to mail large movie magazines or tabloids or newspapers, they have the Stay Flats Plus Rigid Mailer. Uh, which you can get for uh, for them. They're brand new, and their intro sale is 20% off. So if you go to bagsunlimited.com, click on New Items, you can find all of these items there. And, of course, uh, they, they offer everything to protect your collectibles, with the exception of a few items. You can't really protect your action figures here. But um, that's something to keep in mind. So always keeping you up to date with collection protection, uh, keeping those uh, collectibles protected at all times. Remember, keep things... Uh, to keep things nice, you got to protect them. And sometimes you got to spend a little bit of money to protect the more rare items. This has been Collection Protection. Hi, I'm Juliet. And I'm Nathan. Experience Doctor Who from the very beginning through a classic fan's eyes. And through the eyes of a new Who fan. Reminisce and relive those classic moments with Nathan as he offers fun insight. Or experience them for the first time with Juliet as she dwells on social issues, history, fashion, and the size of a flashlight. We're the Time Streams Podcast. Find us on Spotify, Stitcher, or Apple Podcasts. You're listening to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. Keep collecting. 
Up there is the scanner. Those are the doors. That is a chair with a panda on it. Sheer poetry, dear boy. And now it's time for our main story. This is a continuation of our coverage of the classic Doctor Who hardcovers that we have now covered for a few episodes. And we've covered years 1974 through 1979, covering the imprints of Universal Tandem, which included Alan Wingate, Longbow, and W.H. Allen. We start in 1980, where the W.H. Allen is used exclusively. It is not a robust year, but the books average approximately one per month. There were 12 hardcovers published, 11 of which were W.H. Allen, and one American publication. Comparing itself with the paperbacks, the Target books only had 11 new titles, one reprint, and that was that. So they barely kept pace with hardcovers, and we're going to see that as we go forward in the years that the Targets are going to outpace the hardcovers until the hardcover uh, reign comes to an end in 1988. So again, giving you a brief history, since you may be starting with this podcast versus going back in time, um, in 1975, Universal Tandem was sold by a, a conglomerate called UPD to another British conglomerate, Howard and Wyndham, and the company was renamed Tandem Publishing Limited before merging with the paperback version of Howard and Wyndham's general publishing house, W.H. Allen, to become Wyndham Publications Limited in 1976. During 1977 and 1978, the Wyndham identity was completely phased out, and the Tandem imprint was phased out in 1980. Surviving titles from this backlist were reprinted under W.H. Allen's principal paperback imprint, Star Books. The Target imprint survives until 1993, though its latter years were used exclusively for the Doctor Who novelizations and recently was purchased by BBC Books for new Target novelizations. The new targets, by the way, have nothing to do with Universal Tandem. Alan Wingate was completely retired at the end of 1977, and Longbow was completely retired in 1979. The W.H. Allen imprint will be used until the run ends in 1988. Of course, anytime I mention Doctor Who novels, I am required by order of a unanimous vote of the Chicago TARDIS All Access members, that includes my vote, uh, to include our resident Doctor Who novel specialist, the host and producer of the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast, and that is my good friend, Professor Tony Witt. Welcome back, my friend. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, and thank you for promoting me to Professor, because that's a welcome change. <laughs> well, it, it, it kind of goes with your your day job, you know, <laughs> and that's um, I, and I and I know that uh, by listening to several, um, I'd say many episodes of your podcast, you definitely have that knowledge uh, that comes with um, the time, you know, and it's it's sometimes it's just the time spent on the planet Earth longer than others that makes you <laughs> an expert in certain things, you know. In other words, I'm old. That's what you know. you're telling me. Okay, well, that, got it. That, and I can say that because I, yes. I'm actually I'm actually older than you, but that's okay. <laughs> anyway, what I wanted to I want to pay a, a huge compliment. It was a, a recent episode of your podcast caught my attention after I heard. Um, Allison uh, Fitzsafer, you'd say, this brings a Larry level of scholarship to this podcast. Yes. <laughs> and I was <laughs> like, did. oh, my. I said, that just made me almost cry because I thought, wow, I made an impression <laughs> on somebody. And I thought that really just I, I had to go back and listen again. I'm like, oh, that was so nice. That was. Yes. Really 
it's difficult to make an impression on Allison. <laughs> I know. <laughs> she and I, forgets these I as mean, soon as she reads them. Well, and the nice thing about Allison, if, if I if I do see her in Chicago Tardis, she always greets me with a warm hug and a hello and all that. And she's just a genuinely nice person. I know she's she's rough on the reviews, uh, but uh, <laughs> but that was just a nice compliment that that came out. And I, um, you know, really, really just got, you know, I thought, oh, this is really nice. It's nice to be invoked that way. Um, awesome. And coming into 1980 here, the publication of uh, 12 uh, books is basically it's one more than the previous year. So that's uh, 11 new books and one American hardcover and no reprints at all. In fact, we won't see another reprint until 1985. So you'll all have to hang on until we catch up to that point, folks. So it'll be a while. Um, these particular hardcovers are extremely sought after today. And you might have to win the Powerball to afford them all. Uh, and I referenced that because a few weeks ago, somebody in California won the $1.6 billion uh, prize. It hasn't claimed it yet. So, oh, well, somebody's sleeping on that one. Uh, and that's okay. Uh, these books can be found in a number of ways. Uh, the first way, of course, is an ex-library condition, which is either pulled, withdrawn, or stolen from a library. All three have happened. Uh, or... A non-library edition, which is either a retail store version or a publisher-issued version. There are many of those floating around the uh, internet these days. Uh, and a seller on eBay is popping up with all these new copies of Wingate books. And I'm thinking, hmm, I wonder if those were publisher review copies. Uh, they wouldn't necessarily be marked in any way. Sometimes they put preview on, on the book, but these are just new copies or somebody had them in their closet for all these years. You never know. Um, this is going to be an interesting one because many of these titles were the first ones to be distributed in the United States in 1985. Mm. So that actually plays a role in how they're valued. Um, so I'll bring, first of all, any, any good memories of 1980, Tony? Oh, not really, because that was an election year and Reagan yes, got it was. <laughs> so I remember staying up, being allowed to stay up late for the election returns and being woken up around 3 a.m. and my mom telling me that Reagan had won. So and, went to and, that very grumpy. Oh, and, and won by a landslide. It was yeah. like it was like Carter barely carried Georgia. Yeah. And yeah, uh, ridiculous. I, I, I remember that well. Um, some Doctor Who memories from 1980 before I share my own uh, memories here. Of course, on, in March of 1980, Elizabeth Sladen and Ian Martyr attended the Who Won convention in Los Angeles. Uh mm. By the middle of the year, 97 stations in the United States had purchased the series. Of course, one of the 97 stations named is KVVU-TV in Las Vegas, but no one has been able to find any listings for Doctor Who on that channel. So maybe they bought it or agreed to buy it, but never showed it. Hmm. We don't know. In August of 1980, NBC, the network NBC, contacts the BBC to inquire about purchasing Doctor Who. No deal, no deal happens. So that would have been interesting. You know, coming up after Seinfeld, Tom Baker takes on the, uh, you know, that, that would be, you know, just a whole different thing. And of course, there'd be commercials at bad places because British TV wasn't made for that. Um, right. But that was interesting there. In, in November of 1980, U.S. Marvel Comics commences publication of what turns out to be a four-issue comic series, Marvel Premiere, featuring Doctor Who, and that's issues 57 through 60 of that series, with material published in Doctor Who magazine in full color, as opposed to black and white from the weeklies. 
Um, of course, for U.S. censors, the, the story City of the Damned was retitled City of the Cursed. Uh, <laughs> Damned, was, uh, Damned was rejected by the Comic Code Authority. Oh. Of course, <laughs> that uh, I, I I do remember uh, there was a there was a parody comic that came out and it said it was approved by the Common Cold Authority. That's how <laughs> kind of how they treated that. But uh, the last issue uh, published is would be June of 1981 of that series. Uh, according to let's see, a few of my own memories of 1980. Of course, it wasn't it wouldn't be until a year later that I actually went and purchased a Doctor Who item. I started my collecting in 1981. But in 1980, I do remember watching the uh, Tom Baker episodes religiously on TV. Um, they were, I was, let's see, I'm trying to think, 1980. I would have been in uh, grade school at that point. Uh, and just enjoying, um, you know, life as a kid, basically. And our, you know, you and I are close to the same generation. So we would have both been in grade school at that time. And, right. uh, and of course, you know, Doctor Who was a big part of my life. Uh, even I've been watching it for five years at that point, which is still quite, uh, you know, 47 years later, I'm still watching the program. Incredible, incredible uh, stuff. Of course, you know, as Tony mentioned, 1980 was the year that uh, Ronald Reagan uh, probably won one of the biggest landslides in U.S. history of being elected the president of the United States. He would serve two terms and would be invoked as the uh, savior of the Republican Party. Um, Which it really needs now. (laughs) But it it definitely needs that now. And since uh, we are not a political podcast, we're going to steer clear of that entire thing because that's going to get me hit on Twitter pretty hard. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> and um, well, of course, I have yet to pay my $8.99 for my blue star. <laughs> but oh, <that's... laughs> dear. Yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm not going to. That's no. okay. No. Um, in 1980, of course, all the Doctor Who hardcovers will be W.H. Allen on the imprint. Uh, this year, they will be reissued with, they'll be issued with removable dust jackets until June. Hmm. After June, they are now, they will be printed with laminated covers. And uh, my guess uh, for that, when we get to that point in the year, I'm going to probably speculate that it was, you know, we can't afford to do this anymore. Mm-hmm. And and I'm guessing that this is not the first time they've heard that at WH Allen because hardcover sales were so lackluster that hundreds of these copies end up in my possession in 1985. And <laughs> I'll, uh, you know, that's it's just really something else. Uh, anyway, we start uh, in January of 1980 with a book, uh, Doctor Who and the Underworld. And there it is. I'm going to leave these in the bags because when I take them out of the bag, I always get nervous, especially with this one. This happens to be a mint condition copy. Oh, wow. It is. It, it, the binding is still tight uh, and there is no marks on it. It is just, it's, it's one of the books that I had from my Bundles from Britain collection. I don't have them all, but the ones that we were able to take from, because not we sometimes we had like five copies of one, and we were like, we better not take those. You know, we got to sell them. So this was uh, this was one that I had there. Uh, anyway, it's uh, by Terrence Dix uh, with a cover art by Bill Donahue. It's a beautiful cover. Uh, Thirty five hundred copies were printed, and the book had a price of three pounds seventy five, which actually in today's value, because the pound is doing not so doing so good, uh, would be five dollars and sixty seven cents, which isn't too bad because in previous years with inflation it was twenty dollars. So uh, the book is very hard to find in any condition. You could find I, I don't even know what the value would be on a mint condition copy, but I've seen them for three hundred dollars or more. 
and uh, the binding is just amazing on this. Uh, this does have a removable dust jacket and has a picture of Terrence sticks on the front inside front cover. I don't need to show you that again because it's the same photo they've used since 1975. <laughs> so uh, the bio, of course, is in there. It is, of course, it is one of my favorite TV stories because it was the very first Tom Baker story aired in Chicago. Oh, that I did not know. Yeah, in 19, uh, early, early or late 1979. In fact, I remember this because when I tuned in for Doctor Who, it wasn't John Pertwee. It was this guy. And I had no idea who this was, but I was intrigued anyway. And I watched it. And interesting enough, the next episode they showed was Giant Robot or Robot. <laughs> and so I, I saw the opening sequence and I went, oh, I kind of understood now how this worked, that okay, that's how the character works. But they showed him in this really oddball, just like the Pertwee uh, era in Chicago, they started with the mutants and then went to the mind of evil and then went to colony in space. It was all over the place. Um, Mm. And I think they showed him in the cans they arrived in (laughs) because it didn't come with any like, here's the order of the stories. Here's the program guide and all that. No, they didn't get that. And so, but it's an interesting uh, thing. Uh, What did the Target Club uh, think of the, the novel? Well, that was episode 101, and we had J.G. McQuarrie of uh, Talking Who to You, who's now doing a Star Trek podcast, in fact. And we had Jenny Ingersoll on, and Jenny gave it a 3.5, and J.G. and I both gave it a 2.25, because Jenny was quite enthralled with the story and rather liked what Terrence Dix was doing with it and caught all the um, mythological references. But JG and I basically thought it could have gone further than it Mm. did. And we have said many times that you can tell that Terrence Dix does not like adapting stories by Bob Baker and Dave Martin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah. He really didn't like script editing them to begin with because Mm. they always had ideas that were well beyond the budget. And Underworld is one of those. So you can see him actually trying to rein it in on the page. But it's not a bad book. It's just not one of the best ones. Okay, fair enough. Um, It's been a long time since I've read that one. And of course, I read the paperback. I've never cracked that one open. So (laughs) that could be my retirement right there. Uh, You never know. Um, So that was January. So in in February, uh, we now go to Doctor Who and the Invasion of Time by Terrence Dix with a cover by the great Andrew Skilleter. Yes. Uh, by the way, he does listen to this podcast. So I want to give a nice shout out to Andrew. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll be having him on the program very soon. Uh, his new book, I'll give a plug right now. His new book, Illuminart, is is now hitting the, uh, the shelves, uh, including those that pre-ordered his gold edition, of which I was one. Uh, and the gold edition includes not only a leather bound uh, copy, but there is a blank page inside where Andrew does a custom drawing just for you. Oh, wow. So I asked him to do a John Pertwee. And so I can't wait to see what that looks like, but Mm -hmm. he, he wants to come on the podcast and talk about it. And then I get to ask him all kinds of questions about, so how'd they rope you into doing canine and other mechanical creatures and stuff like that, you know, just, (laughs) just things that, you know, that led to destiny of the Daleks, which uh, was, was an interesting cover. Um, The, uh, you know, 4,000 copies were printed. And not many of them sold. Mm. And I can tell you that because the remaining copies landed to the Bundles from Britain uh, inventory in 1985. This book sold 
in the United States for $19 and we sold oh. out all copies. Oh. 19 bucks. Oh, um, Lord. We, uh, and this was the, this was the Gene Smith random pricing method. It has a dust jacket. So it's a little more. <laughs> <laughs> Laminate covers, $12. <laughs> dust jackets, 19. And we're like, okay. We still made money on them. So it's not a big deal. Um, and uh, I remember these going because we had these on the table and people were like, I've never seen these before. I must have them. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. Uh, so and as a result, though, we had a significant number of copies of this. This is this is by way, by the way an ex library copy because I couldn't even get one. They were selling out so fast, um, and so this is actually not a bad. It's not in bad condition. Uh, it's not very hard to find. I've seen many copies for sale, so you could pay up to two hundred dollars for a copy, which isn't too bad. Um, there's a lot of non-library copies floating around the United States, so somebody has them somewhere, uh, and if they do turn up, you might. Be paying a little bit more for those and by the way the cover print uh can be obtained from andrew skilleter's website at andrewskilleter.com however the original painting is lost we don't know who has it um so his paint his prints are all based on a scan of the hardcover book hmm. which is interesting um and so uh this so you know basically uh that was that was how that worked. Uh, many of his prints disappeared, either were taken from him or he sold them to make rent, you know, like as we all do when we're young. <laughs> <laughs> so what was the verdict on Invasion of Time, Tony? Uh, Allison and Dalton were on episode 102 for that one. And Allison gave it a 2.5, which is actually kind of high for her. Pretty good for her. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and Dalton and I both gave it a three. So Dalton's... <laughs> Dalton said that this one was not a complete piece of garbage. <laughs> so that's, um, for Dalton, that's a very acid uh, pronouncement. So I'd say that we probably didn't like it as much as we could have, but it was non-offensive. Yeah, and <laughs> for me, the TV story, it just brought to mind this, this, this wonderful gleaming uh, console room, and the rest of the TARDIS is in squalor. Yeah. <laughs> Because yeah. they couldn't afford to build all of those hallways. And so they used some warehouse or something where they had these stairs going down to, you know, the same staircase over and over again, in some cases, um, mm -hmm. down to in a swimming pool and a really bad looking locker room area. And I'm thinking, what do they rate a high school or what did, where did they film <laughs> this? But it oh, was just, better on the page. <laughs> oh, I, I know. I've, I've read I've read the book because I thought, man, they and it's much better on there. But the like the screen one was just uh, and of course, when I first watched it as a kid, I'll never forget thinking, oh, I wonder who the Vardens are. And we kept hoping it was the Daleks. You know, that was because <laughs> we're like, come on, let it be. And it's like, oh, it's these guys in silver suits. Yep. <laughs> and the Santarans show up and it's a party. So <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> what a story. What a story. And of course, they did it uh, in, in Chicago. They were doing them all cut together. So they did it in two parts. Oh. Uh, so, so you had to watch it over two weeks. That was uh, it was Sunday. It was Saturday morning. And so they did Invasion of Time Part One. And the next Saturday morning was Invasion of Time Part Two. So I had to come back for the, the second part. Uh, OK, well, we go to March of 1980 and we have Doctor Who and the Stones of Blood by Terrence Dix with another cover by Andrew Skilleter. Uh, it has a red spine and basically the same Terrence Dix photo and bio on the inside that they've been using since 1975. Um, this so the 3,500 copies were uh, printed. 
but not all of, the, all of them sold because the remaining inventory, again, came into my possession in 1985. Uh, Bundles from Britain sold this book for also for $19, and they all sold out. In fact, uh, this one, uh, Androids of Tara, Armageddon Factor, Power of Kroll, people were just scooping up the set and buying them all. And I'm trying to remember, I think we even gave them a deal. <laughs> <laughs> we, we knocked the price down a little because they were buying five. It's like okay, five of them for you know nineteen. Da, 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 okay, a hundred dollars. All right, yeah, great. You know, was, so they they were flying off the table. Um, the original painting for the cover is in the possession of Andrew Skilleter. So prints from uh, Andrew Skilleter will be from the original, which is nice. Um, this book should be fairly easy to find in the United States. Price is roughly two hundred dollars. Uh, this is a uh, this is a copy from Bundles from Britain. It, we officially withdrew this copy because there was a flaw. Uh, one of the pages uh, was off printed by a little bit, so I guess it's a printing error. So I got to keep the printing error, which might make it more <laughs> valuable. I don't know. Um, so there you go. Uh, I know uh, this was actually a recent episode when you did the new version. Yes. of this book but what was the rating for the original version well at the time we actually all liked it uh oh. dalton and jenny and i all three gave it a 3.5 but i think that's because it's the original story itself yes. Yes. is pretty good it and is. even though david fisher notoriously hated the novelization that Terrence Dix did to the point that he did the new version specifically because he hated it so much. We rather enjoyed it. That being said, when the David Fisher version came out, we read that one and loved it much more. Well, that's good. Yeah. And for me, the TV story, I'll never forget. This was one of the ones I watched Sunday night at 11 because they, um, they started showing, um, from Rebo's operation on, on Sunday nights, they stopped doing Sunday, Saturday mornings. Uh, and for a while they were showing early Doctor Who on Saturday mornings, but only the later stuff was being shown on Sunday nights. And I just remember going to bed and having the worst nightmare about the ogre. <laughs> Stones coming to, you know, coming for you. And I thought it was a very terrifying episode. Yes. Um, especially when the camper, you know, gets oh, killed disintegrates. yeah just, just and i'm sure mary whitehouse had a field day with that one uh, but <laughs> but mm -hmm. uh but yeah just one of those stories that was it was chilling but i thought it was a good story plus you get the tom baker humor of putting on a barrister's wig and <laughs> and, and giving a defense which i thought he had you know if, and i and i looked hard i wanted to see if he was ever on an episode of rumpel of the bailey but no he was never <laughs> on that show but that was a it was a it was a fun story and of course i always i always love the actress who played vivian fay mm -hmm. that's uh just a, a wonderful wonderful uh acting good story for me it was a, a favorite of mine growing up yeah. susan angle who yes. played that part also does the audiobook yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I got to get the audiobook. Uh, it's kind of like when I, I, I was at a, a, a off story, but uh, when I was going, somebody was looking through my, one of my portfolios, they noticed I had an autograph of Anna Berry. I don't oh. know if you know who Anna Berry was. She, she played um, uh, one of the uh, gorillas on day of the Daleks. She was the female soldier. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I was at a completely different, event it was she it was some kind of a thing for publishers and i was walking around and i saw the name and i went anna barry and she was yes that's me i said i loved you in day of the daleks and she just got all tickled gave me a big <laughs> hug and said 
hold on, hon, hold on. She went back and got her bag and she pulled out this photo she had of her holding the gun to John Pertwee and she signed it for me. <laughs> so I have that in my, uh, in fact, I might even have it right here. Hang on, this might be worth pulling up here for, um, oh, here it is, yes, here it is. Oh, and then was I, she, yeah, was she yeah, there she was, for something entirely different? Or? Yeah, she was, she was a, she's an author. Oh, okay. She, she has uh, it's a completely different thing. I mean, she acted for many years. I mean, she's she's well into her eighties now, uh, mm -hmm. but but um, she said she did a lot of one-off TV roles. And I said I was I was in love with your character because <laughs> Day of the Daleks is my favorite story, and I was just thrilled to death to meet her. And, oh, yeah. and it was just really cool that she uh, did that. So, like I said, I'm always on. The, you know, when I'm out and about, so you never quite know what's going to happen. <laughs> so somebody was thinking, how did you get that? Because I don't think she's ever been to a convention. I said, no, she's never been to a convention. That's why that autograph is pretty, pretty nice. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, so moving, moving forward here to April. We're back. We're still in the Key to Time series here with Doctor Who and the Androids of Tara. And this is by Terrence Dix with another great cover by Andrew Skilleter. 3,500 copies were printed, but just like the last title and some of the other ones here, they didn't all sell, and over 300 of these came to the United States, and they couldn't sell them either, so they ended up with me. Wendell <laughs> <laughs> from Britain had this copy. This, this book sold for $19 in the United States, and they all sold out. Uh, I was not able to get a copy. They sold out so fast. So this is an ex-library copy that I picked up about 10 years ago, but it's in really good shape. I mean, uh, one thing, I, I, I'm kind of recommending uh, collectors get those those uh, book covers that library uses uses to protect hardbacks because they really do protect the dust jacket. Mm -hmm. I mean, I pulled them off and the dust jacket is in mint condition. So it's just, and especially if they do it right and don't use any adhesive, which you're just supposed to slide it on and let it be. Um, but what an amazing book. Um, the, uh, let's see here. So apparently uh, on this particular book here, I've seen it come up for sale uh, anywhere from $200 to $250. So the hardback price on this book actually went up in England to £3.95. Uh, so they had to increase the price. And, and again, sales were not very good. Um, and I also know this was another recent episode of yours with the newer version. Yes. So um, what was the original version's uh, rating on this one? We had Eric Branson on okay. for that one, and who was also part of our uh, our network. Yes, and he, <laughs> he gave it a 2.5. Dalton gave it a 2. So, of course, I went down the middle with 2.25. And to be honest, none of us are terribly impressed with the story, Androids of Tara. And yeah, Terrence Dick's version on the page kind of lays there flat. And unfortunately, so does the rewrite by David Fisher. He doesn't do a lot more with it, even though he does put in some flourishes that make it a little more palatable. But yeah, it's not one of our favorites. I do have the new Target book. It's basically in my collection. It's in a box somewhere, but um, it was not my favorite TV story. I thought it was a weak story. Um, it it kind of made Romana's character the damsel in distress, mm -hmm. which is something she didn't want to do. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it, it, I just didn't care for, uh, you know, when I when I saw the title, I remember when I watched it, Androids of Tara, I thought, I was thinking Android Invasion in my head. And 
you know, kind of going with that, but that turned out to be something completely different. And in fact, the story could have been a lot quicker if they said, oh, found the key. Let's go back to the TARDIS and go to the next thing. Right. <laughs> we could have, could have avoided the whole Prince Grendel thing entirely. But no, they had to go on for 90 minutes. And that's uh, that's a shame. But uh yeah, I I remember thinking that it was going to have something to do with Gone with the Wind. Oh, so, yeah, that, yeah, that would have been interesting to well, have the, androids the, during androids the Civil War. Androids wearing uh, you know, the curtain rod. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, the Carol Burnett show. Carol, I'll never forget that. That's still in my burned <laughs> in my head. But yeah, that that's uh, I think that's one of the weaker key to time stories uh, for me. Oh, gosh. And of course, we keep going with that. By the way, these are the only uh, this is one of the only times when they did the books in public in story order. Mm -hmm. And they did they mirrored this with the paperbacks. This was uh, uh, a rare thing because, you know, in a few titles here, we're going to go backwards real far and then and and go to something else. So it's kind of it's strange how they did some of these. Of course, you'll notice, uh, listeners, that the Pirate Planet is not included here, and W.H. Allen never published a copy of The Pirate Planet. In fact, uh, a copy of that would not be published until well into the 2000s. So it's uh, it's a book that I know we all longed for back then. Uh, we wanted a Target book. We wanted a hardcover on it. It just never happened because of the Douglas Adams estate. And uh, that was that's, that was a, a shame on that. But we go to May of 1980, and we get Doctor Who and the Power of Kroll, uh, by Terrence Dix, another wonderful cover by Andrew Skeletor. I always liked his his uh, Tom Baker drawings. Oh, yes. Very good. This is an ex-library copy. Uh, it actually has a, a, a faint rip right down the cover here. It's hard to see, but it was repaired by, uh, very expertly repaired by, by library tape on the back. So someone was paying attention there. Um, came out in, in May. Uh, the book sold uh despite having this book i i couldn't get a copy of this either because believe it or not even though this was not a great story for me uh nobody had seen these hardcovers before so they flew off the shelf and they all sold this one sold for 19 dollars in the united states uh 3500 copies were sold were printed uh for this book uh but about 400 of them came to the united states so that means only 3100 copies sold in the uk it's interesting 37,000 copies of the Target book were printed. Hmm. And those all sold. So only 10%, roughly 10% of what they did for paperback, they did for hardcover, which is really interesting on that. Uh, the cover, of course, by the way, Andrew Skilleter rates this as one of his top five favorite covers that he reported to Doctor Who magazine in August of 2019. Hmm. So, and I think it's a great cover too. Uh, covers of this print can be bought from Andrew's website. However, again, the original painting is missing and whereabouts unknown. So somebody out there is sitting on this painting somewhere. Um, some paperbacks, by the way, were included in early editions of the Doctor Who Target gift set back in 82, uh, which had a picture of the program guide uh, image on the front cover. And it had five, four random Target books. And those, uh, I'm gonna, I think I, I'm, no, I haven't. I think I don't think I mentioned those yet. But in another episode, I'm going to cover those gift sets because that has to do with a complete overprinting. Like I said, thirty-seven thousand copies were printed of Power of Crawl, so um, they included those in the gift set. My guess is some of them were still hanging around. Uh, this book actually can fetch about a hundred dollars in non-library condition and a little bit less in ex-library condition. It's not a real sought-after book, uh, so not one of my favorite screen stories either because of. The effects were just horrible. Um, but what was the rating on Power of Crawl? 
We had uh, Jenny back on for that one. Oh, yeah. And she, Dalton, and I all gave it a two. We were extremely underwhelmed with the story. Mm. We were extremely underwhelmed with the book. And we were extremely underwhelmed, and we still joke about it to this day, with the <laughs> scene of Romana saying, oh, but doctor, I just want to look out the window and see this thing, and having the having it come through the window, window and yeah. grab her. That's almost, like, that is so out of character for Romana. It, it's almost an airplane movie moment. You know? Yeah, <laughs> it really is. Uh, yeah, I was. that was definitely, uh, it was one, I think I fell asleep when I first saw it, you know, I was on it Sunday night at 11. I honestly just, I think I got bored. Cause I remember, I think about two in the morning, my mom woke me up and said, I thought you fall. I just, I fell over on the couch with the TV on and, <laughs> and I got to bed. I got up for school the next day. No problem. But I'm like, Oh, I don't remember much, but I watched it again. And I was like, Oh, that's why I fell asleep. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It's a uh, four parter that plays like a six parter. It does. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Cause it probably could have been summed up in two parts if they cut out a lot of, <laughs> You know, yes. do one of those, but they hadn't done a two-parter since Santaran experiment. So no. like, no, we're not doing that. And they won't do another one until Black Orchid. So interesting stuff. Um, of course, we go now to June of 1980. This is an important time because we have Doctor Who and the Armageddon Factor, the final story of the key to time uh, with uh, Terrence Dix here and Bill Donahue's cover, but the last hardcover to have a removable dust jacket, the cheap bastards. Mm. <laughs> this is the last book to have a removable dust jacket uh and as a result uh it's a very sought after book this book was also in u.s distribution with a cover price of 19 dollars um and this is a copy from that time period only 3250 copies were printed now the previous month it was 3700 so they cut back a little bit on this one uh 47,000 paperbacks were printed of this book and uh, that was during the entire run of the book. That was over four printings. Um, nothing noteworthy about this publication except, um, and there's no information why all of a sudden they stopped doing the uh, dust jackets and went to laminated boards. Could be a couple of reasons. I know uh, from working in the publishing industry, one possibility is the printer they used is no longer doing them. You know, I was like, oh, I'm sorry, we can't do that anymore. Or the printer was going to charge them too much money and they'd have to raise the price and nobody would buy them. That's mm -hmm. another issue that could happen. Or they thought, eh, we've we've had its fun with it and it's a pain to put them together because they come separate and you've got to fold them and do all that. And it's like, because uh, I remember having to do that once. Uh, we had to take our turns. Even though I was in the marketing department, we had to go and fold dust jackets and things oh. like that. Like, that's, oh, what a pain. So I can understand that. But, but it's kind of a, a sad loss that um, up until this point from 1974, uh, we've had this removable dust jacket, which made this book kind of, kind of special. Um, sales were not great for this copy, despite it. And of course, nobody announced that this was going to be the final. If they had, it might have sold better. Um, and so this book is actually going for about $50 to $100 in new condition. A lot of them are floating about. Um, Ex-library editions I've seen as low as 50. And, uh, you know, so, um, and, if, and I remember this story too. This was also another two-parter that they had to do on Sunday night because all the six-parters, they divided parts one, two, and three, and then four, five, and six. So you had to watch it over two weeks. And they always did it during pledge break so they could get more money. Mm -hmm. Of course. <laughs> so uh, what was the uh, verdict on uh, Armageddon Factor? Well, the scores were weird on this one. Uh, Allison gave it a 1.5, but she called it not an especially vindictive 1.5. Oh, wow. That sounds which, which like I Allison. Thought, <laughs> yeah. it's out, it was a very strange uh, 
yeah, it was a very strange qualification on her part. Dalton gave it a 2.5. I gave it a 3, and I actually said that I had read it twice because of scheduling things. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed it very much the first time through, and the book is always better in this case than the televised version because, yeah, yeah, Terrence Dix is taking it a lot more seriously than the original writers did were again bob baker and dave martin the second time through though all the plot holes come out ah okay so yeah yeah the story on uh, the tv story i just remember the the whole uh drax thing and uh uh you know just and there's that there's another time lord who's there there's of course lala ward and mary tam get to share some scream time which is pretty nice of course mm-hmm. not knowing what was going to happen in the next season uh for for those of us that watched it the first time through going oh we're going to see more of lala ward we had no idea um but <laughs> that was about it um so okay uh, coming back to the united states also in june of 1980 the biggest kept secret in the country was that Aeonian Publishing, and I didn't ask you for a rating on this one because we'll get to this one later in W.H. Allen, but Mm. they allegedly published the giant robot in hardcover edition with no cover art. And so this is it. Oh. Doctor Who and the giant robot. Yeah. um, It came out, it says limited to 300 copies. This copy is still in the shrink wrap because I bought it new on Amazon for 1995. Oh. Five or six years ago. Good Lord. And uh, it's it's unknown what the price was originally, as with most previous Aeonian books. Um, Red, White, and Who uh, says that the person behind the company still doesn't remember anything about <laughs> what this was because they did interview him, but I guess he was old at that point. Now, he may be gone now, but um, it was probably one of the best-kept secrets in the United States. This book was published here in New York. And... It didn't obviously didn't sell very well, but new copies were still available on Amazon up to five years ago. When, uh, by the way, incidentally, five years ago, Red, White, and Who came out. Right. <laughs> so people were like, "Oh, these books are on Amazon," and so they were grabbed up pretty fast on Amazon. Of course. They were. Um, according, because I have Day of the Daleks, I also have an image of the Fendal. Uh, but they published several of these books. They did Revenge of the Cybermen, Genesis of the Daleks, uh, Android Invasion, um, and. Uh, there's just there, no no cover art, nothing here. There's a there's a barcode on the back, um, and that's about it. So, as Terrence Dix credited, I'm pretty sure Terrence didn't get a dime from these people. Uh, mm-hmm. D- David J. Howe actually uh, said he thought these were all uh, bogus publications because that's why he didn't pay much attention to them. But when I did a segment on him on a previous podcast, he kind of said. Well, let me look into that a little bit more. So I sent him scans from the uh, Red, White, and Who book to kind of show him what the research was. And he was kind of going to compile that into his notes to see what else he could find out. Whether or not they had a license, we don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, we assume we they, we assume they did. Uh, but we also can't verify if 300 copies were sold or if more copies were printed. Or if somebody else picked up the book, scanned it, and reprinted their own. We don't know. Uh, so it's just an interesting piece of history. It came out in June of 1980. Uh, I, impossible to put a rating on it because I have seen no copies for sale since they sold out of Amazon five years ago. Um, nobody's really offering them, uh, but keep your eye out. You know, and if you if you're looking to collect these, uh, I would my my advice there is if you're an eBay person, go to eBay and type in the box in quotes 
uh, Doctor Who and the Giant Robot, and then put another thing in quotes, Aeonian, and save that search. And they will email you when that listing pops up with any of those words in it. And you might get lucky. I mean, I got lucky today, just on a side note. You know, I have one of those Berwick Dalek play suits from 1965. Mm-hmm. And it's it's missing the eye stock, the gun, and the plunger. Well, today I found a plunger. Oh, awesome. <laughs> and it came up in my, I was like looking through, because I get a bunch of these searches for research. And all of a sudden I'm like, Berwick, there's a Berwick one. Plunger. I want it. <laughs> Buy it now. Yes. <laughs> so I've got a plunger on the way. So I still need an eye stock and a gun stick. And that would increase the value of this because uh, I have it in the original box. Mm. And uh, it is actually uh, in just, uh, I know I've, I brought it down to Doktoberfest and they were talking about the Berwick play suit. And they said, oh, we've got one over here. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it was, wow, that's really it. I said, yeah. And you can see how, you know, the helmet has these little leather straps that are supposedly hold it on the kid's head. And mm. it's like, I think it was a death trap, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> but um, but it's kind of cool because they capitalized on that Dalek, you know, mania back in 65 and and produced all this wonderful stuff. Um, but what's nice, the box has printed on it with a little Dalek on there. It says the Berwick Dalek play suit on the box. And uh, I've done my best to keep that box in good shape. But I was, you know, so those eBay searches do work. That's my point, is that the plunger finally came up. And I was like, yes, I could grab that before. Because as soon as it's listed... Their email system is pretty good. They generate those emails pretty fast, mm-hmm. so it's a pretty good deal. Um, so, of course, we're gonna we're gonna kind of take things down several. We're gonna lower the bar quite a bit for our next <laughs> our next installment here. In also in June of 1980, going back to WH Allen, and I actually wrote in my notes here to add insult to injury. Yes, we get Junior Doctor Who in the Brain of Morbius. Oh my! Um, by Terrence Dix with Harry Hance doing the cover art. Um, and by the way, the paperback was delayed until November. And for some weird reason, the paperback gets a 1987 reprint because there is a I have a, I have two copies of this in paperback. I have this cover and then I have a blue cover with the neon logo uh, from 1981. So for some reason, they tried to do it again. Um, and I don't think it did well on either on either uh, side. Um, the U.S. distributor uh, did not carry this. In fact, I remember asking about it because we saw an ad for them in one of the magazines, and they said they are not available. And I, I know that we went into some deep discussion uh, on an episode of the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Yes, uh, we did. And, and did some uh, heavy research into this. So uh, I'm going to say I'm not going to go into the heavy research I did on this. I would like to ask my listeners to if you don't have it already, and it should be right next to this one, uh, go to the Target Book Club podcast, go back to that episode and listen to it carefully, and you'll learn all about the Junior Series. Um, Peter Edwards did the illustrations, and the book is very hard to find. Uh, in fact, I'll, I'll make a quick comment. I know previously we talked about Doctor Who and the, the Junior Doctor Who Giant Robot book, and I noted that my copy um, had the first three pages ripped out. Mm. Incidentally, another copy has surfaced on eBay, also with the first three pages ripped out. What on earth? What are the chances that they all had the first three pages ripped out and were dumped? Because you can't actually rip the cover off a hardback very easily. I know paperbacks, they tear the cover off. Right. But they tore out the title page, the acknowledges page, and the chapter pages. All missing. My copy has the three pages missing. 
and a guy in Leeds, England, who just put his up, also has three pages missing, the same three pages. That's, That's bizarre. That is not a coincidence. That no. is that is something that is out there. So that adds to my to my head scratchings on the junior series. Um, but uh, it's a very uh, the book. And I'll just say this to my listeners: this book is not very good. Um, and <laughs> I was I was on the pa- the uh, the panel for the Target Book Club. And so, what was our collective thoughts on this one, Tony? We did not like it. No, uh, we didn't. We liked it. Better that's the royal than, we, by the way. <laughs> we liked it better than Giant Robot. Yes, slightly. And yeah, and. We, um, let's see, Trey Corte was with us on that one. He gave both of them zeros, mm-hmm. which is the lowest score anyone has ever given anything on the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast ever. I remember. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then you, I, and Dalton all gave it twos. Yeah. And we, 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 all of us scored it higher than Giant Robot because Giant Robot is just a butcher job. It's on a the terrible original butcher book. job, yes. It's a terrible butcher job, whereas Brain of Morbius has, let's see, how did I put it? It has stuff missing, but it has less stuff missing. Right. And right. it's it's better edited together. However, you do have the amazing disappearing Ohika at the very yes. end of it. Yes. Because, of course, you can't have her burning herself to death in a children's book. She just disappears from the narrative. Right. And the next line, the very last line goes to, um, no, I'm sorry, not Ohika, Marin. Marin is right, the one right. who disappears, and Ohika is the last one who who has the last line in the book. And she isn't the one who, yeah, <laughs> it's it's a very odd thing, but none of us liked it. And I, I, I do still love to read the back cover where it says, due to popular demand, Turin yeah. Sticks has rewritten this book uh, for five to eight-year-olds. And yet it's still got a 1981 reprint. And I remember that reprint was also not available um, in the United States for target orders. So I'm not sure what happened there. I do want to point out, though, that this book does not have a removable dust jacket, but neither did Giant Robot in the previous thing. So I think... No. They did that as part of the children's book marketing. But again, I'm, you know, and I'll say this again, I've said it before, this would have been a perfect longbow imprint since that's their children's imprint. They didn't use it. Um, and uh, you could probably pay, I know right now I've seen this book on Abe's books for $250 and the pages are not ripped out of these copies. I don't know why. Not why Giant Robot got that, but Giant Robot is a lot harder to find. So um, that's that's what that was June of 1980. So now we get into some interesting stuff in July because I had to do some serious research here because I've always wondered why this happened. But in 1980, we get uh, an older book. We get Doctor Who and the Curse of Peladon by Brian Hales with the cover art by Bill Donahue. Mm-hmm. And not only is this the first hardcover, 3,000 copies, by the way, printed of this one. Not only is it the first hardcover to have a laminated cover, it is one of the only hardcovers to have different artwork from the original paperback. Oh. The, the paperback was by Chris Achilleos, Um, and that's how it came out in 1974. And this book came out in 1980. Well, I found out why. And this is an interesting thing. Uh, the reason uh, there's a dispute 
between W.H. Allen and the Writers Guild on publishing hardcover editions of previously released paperback books. Hmm. Since, Monst since Monster Peladon was being worked on, uh, that book was not affected because that book came out later than Curse of Peladon. Curse of Peladon came out in 1974. Monster comes out in 1980 in paperback form. So, um, so that book was not affected. So Chris's cover art could not be used as part of this agreement for this book. Um, and despite the fact that the earlier copy here that I said had numerous reprints itself, I mean, the block logo was the original. There was a there was a the diamond logo later. There was a white logo on one of these. And I actually like the Chris Achilles cover. It's a it's a beautiful cover. He does John Pertwee really well. Um, but this was interesting how this happens. It explains why future hardcovers, and we'll get to that in a couple of years when you see Day of the Daleks or Doctor Who and the Cybermen, which all came out in 74, have different artwork because they were not allowed to use the original artwork. And they never, they had not, as far as I know, that dispute still hangs today because normally as, and in, we all know this, if we're book, if you're buying books, normally the hardcover comes out first and then the paperback. But for some reason in Doctor Who and W.H. Allen's world, the paperback came out years before and then they decided to do a hardcover. And I'm not sure why they didn't do a hardcover in 74. They only did two and they didn't bother to do those covers. Um, you'll also have the Crusaders, which has a different cover and uh, which had the paperback uh, printed earlier. Uh, there was no price increase on this book, despite the fact that it has laminated boards. Um, it's £3.95. This cover art, by the way, is not available anywhere. Bill Donahue uh, does not have any kind of uh, uh, setup where he sells prints or anything like that. So um, it's quite interesting how that works. So if I'm wrong about that, by the way, if somebody else knows something different, please message me at uh, Dr. Who Collectors Podcast at gmail.com. I'll actually on the video part, I'll put that email down at the bottom of the screen. And let me know, because um, that would be interesting to find out if he does have prints of, of this particular uh, cover. And you'll notice, too, that there's no no picture of John Pertwee on the cover. Because mm -hmm. at this point, 1980, um, John, John Pertwee is still very much alive, and uh, he would have gotten paid for his image to be on the book, so they avoided using it. Um, so uh, the... Uh, Let's see, there. You pay about two hundred bucks for this book in any condition. This, by the way, was part of U.S. distribution, but not many copies were available. I think we got ten of these. So um, this is an ex-library copy because I was not allowed to take one of. We had ten. I wasn't allowed to take one, and I was the boss. So, <laughs> <laughs> but this is an old one. So this this actually goes back quite a bit for your podcast. But what uh, what was the verdict on Curse of Peladon? Goes back to episode sixty. Uh, Dalton gave it a three. Allison gave it a two, which is rather high for her. I gave it a 2.5 because that's what I do. Yes. Um, <laughs> this is the way I feel about Brian Hales. I like his prose style. I wish he wrote better stories mm. because I am not a fan of the monster. Uh, I'm not a fan of the Paladon stories at all. I'm I, I'm in agreement. I, I remember seeing Cur I saw the Curse of Peladon uh, at a fan club meeting of the Emissaries of the White Guardian uh, in 1982 because that was not part of the U.S. Um, Pertwee plan, mm -hmm. uh, and I remember watching that at uh, at uh, that 
location. He had a, a British pal converted uh, camera copy of that. And I remember just, you know, loving it as a Pertwee story. But then as I watched it later, I thought, that's not a great story. Mm -hmm. um, however, I will say, uh, just to plug this out there, if you're a big finish plan uh, follower, definitely get the uh, the Peladon box set because it's better. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, and David Troughton does reprise his role as King Peladon in the first story. So it's it's really quite uh, it's quite interesting to to hear. And of course, Brian Hales had nothing to do with that. So it's uh, a whole new set of stories on Peladon. And uh, I do recommend it. It's a very good story. And I think David Tennant is on. I'm, I'm not finished with it yet, but David Tennant is on it as well. But uh, it, it, I do remember all all 10 copies of this book sold very quickly because people were like, wow, that's a different cover. <laughs> <laughs> and I never knew why until I, I did some research on it and found that that was true. So going forward, um, any of the old books that got hardcover treatments later could not have the original artwork. And that's a shame because, you know, the, the Chris Achilles artwork, just there's something just really, you know, uh, iconic about it you know it's just really quite it's the first artwork and it helps sell those books early on but uh, and of course we're coming into august of 1980 where we get a, a pretty lackluster cover uh for doctor who and oh excuse me uh wrong wrong book uh i honestly thought when i did this script for this podcast hey i think i have all the hardcovers for 1980 but i don't <laughs> <laughs> I, I am missing this next one. It's Doctor Who and the Nightmare of Eden. Um, and it's really interesting how um, there are no copies available that I've I've, I've I've had this one on the search for years and it's never come up. But it's Terrence Dix with a wonderful cover by Andrew Skilleter once again. Um, this book was part of the distribution plan, sold at $15, but it all sold out. In fact, that sold out at the very first convention we did. And uh, that was at the Elk Grove Village uh, High School. Uh, and I remember really well that uh, for, and this book was at, uh, this was not $19, this was $12. So um, it sold very quickly. Um, the, uh, the book, uh, let's see, 3,250 copies were printed of the hardcover. And uh, the Target book was actually released one month early in July, and 35,000 copies were printed. Uh, 4,000 were reprinted in 1988. Uh, the Doctor's image on the front cover comes from the story of the Sunmakers. And Andrew Skilleter does own the original painting for it. And you can get copies of this print at andrewskilleter.com. Um, the book sold well, according to reports, because it came out during the summer holidays in the UK. Mm -hmm. And it had a great anti-drug message. <laughs> so... Despite this being in the United States, copies are impossible to find. So there, I have not been able to set a value on it because I haven't seen anybody sell one. And the last time I sold one, I was pretty young. <laughs> so <laughs> I think I was 16 years old when these sold out. So it, it was a long time ago. Um, what was the rating on Nightmare of Eden, Tony? Well, we had Jennifer Picker on oh, that yes, episode yes. and she is very much a fan of that story so she gave the novelization a four uh -huh. um dalton and i both looked at her scans and gave it a 2.5 <laughs> because we describe it as doctor who's very special episode yeah it's like an after school special <laughs> it really is it yeah. seriously is and don't do uh, frack sewing <laughs> yes and it's fine except that you would think that terrence dicks being the 
grand poobah of educational stories to us all yeah, would want yeah. to hammer that message harder than he does. But no, it's because it's a Bob Baker script. So of course, there not. we go. Yeah. <laughs> and Bob Baker. And it's, it's, it's also a great story. Uh, I I've often thought about taking the, op- the footage of the ships crashing and doing a car insurance commercial. With it. <laughs> <laughs> if you had progressive, this might be your problem. <laughs> a time Lord might have to show up to help separate your ships. But you know, it just, I, I, I was not a big fan of this, this story. It was not, not, not something on my, on my radar. This, this particular paperback, I have happens to be a first edition from uh from 1980 uh i'm not sure when i got it does not have the u.s price on the back that's all i can tell it's an original because they lyle student hadn't been set up yet um but uh it's it's a you know it, it's gosh i i just didn't care for it that was mm-hmm. just not my not my story at all um and uh you know i'm, I'm glad you know i'm glad they 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 had an anti-drug message but yeah, I was kind of lost in this this campy story. Yes. So that is really sad. But um, and also in, in August of 1980, we get a twofer here. Um, we get probably one of the probably one of the least um, favorite covers of mine, uh, Doctor Who and the Keys of Marinus, which basically just has this TARDIS in space here. Philip Hinchcliffe, who I know is not a favorite of the pod, of the other podcast, yeah. <laughs> uh, the cover painting is by David McAllister. Thirty two hundred and fifty copies were printed, and notably, the first William Hartnell story to be published uh, in quite some time. Mm-hmm. Andrew was unable to do the cover for this for two reasons. Uh, first of all, no color images were available of the Keys of Marinus at that time to work from which was kind of difficult. And he said, I've got like nine other commissions to do. So um, he was also working on the covers for the target novelizations of Wurzel Gummidge. Oh, right. So those, and those were, were doing quite well because John Pertwee had made that a very popular show with, with children and uh, the old children's stories by Barbara Youf and Todd um, got a, a new facelift with Target books, by the way. Target released uh, three of those books, all illustrated by Andrew Skeletor. And uh, I think I have one, Earthy Mangold and Warzel Gummidge is somewhere in my collection. Um, beautiful cover of John Pertwee, because he draws John Pertwee very well. Mm-hmm. And, and he decided to do that. So uh, David McAllister solved the problem. He said, how about we just simply show a TARDIS in flight over a horizon and call it, but there's nothing to do with the keys of Marinus on the front cover of this book. <laughs> um, uh, nothing to do with the story. The book is very hard to find, even though I think 50 copies made it to the United States. We did have this book and it sold for $15. Um, this is an ex library copy that I got from my good friend, uh, quirky Queens books in Leeds. Uh, Kirsten is her name. She actually, uh, just found a copy of the space war and emailed me first to see if I wanted it. I said, well, I've already got it. And she's like, okay, great. No. And she always tells me first when she gets a big bundle of books in, if they're doctor who related, she sets them aside, takes numerous photos of them and emails me and says, Hey, are you interested in any of these? And can you help me with the price? So what a wonderful thing. She has a, uh, she's an online bookstore through eBay. And uh, I will share that link on the website with this post because you should take care of her. She's a great lady and uh, you should buy her books from her. Um, this book, I uh, expect to pay about $150 for a copy of this book. Uh, I did not pay $150 for this copy. I got this from Kirsten for about $75, which was really Ooh. nice. Um, and 
uh, it is also a laminate book. There are, you know, again, no, no dust jackets. So we're back to that. And uh, Philip Hitchcliffe, I know, not a favorite author of the Target Book Club. So, yeah. so how did, I'm guessing this didn't fare well. <laughs> no, not really. This is the fifth episode of the podcast. And I believe it's Dalton's third episode and it's Sheena's third as well. This is back when we had Sheena as our um, main person. Yes, I remember. And uh, she gave it a high score, but it was an odd one. It was 3.8. Mm, <laughs> so I I don't know why she scored it that high, because uh, Dalton yeah. gave it a 2.5, and I, weirdly enough, gave it a 2.3. I don't mm. know what we were smoking that night, but it was something to get us through this book. Yeah. Because, oh, my <laughs> God. Philip Hitchcliffe, let me make this clear to your listeners because I've Please. had to do it with mine several times. Philip Hinchcliffe is a marvelous producer. Yes. And he is one of the alternative doctors. So he will always go down in Doctor Who history as an important figure. Mm -hmm. He's not a great pro stylist. Nope. <laughs> and he manages to not only butcher this book, but also butchers Baskin and Dragora and does the absolute worst version of Seeds of Doom that you could ever imagine, which... Yeah, which is a criminal act to me because I adore Seeds of Doom. Oh, Keith yeah. Baron is not so much. So I'm fine with that. But yeah, this no. book, even this deserves better. And for me, I, I didn't see the Keys of Marinus until the USA got the Hartnell package. Uh, and uh, I thought it was okay. Yeah. I mean, it, it's not a great story, but of course, getting used to early Doctor Who. And by the way, if you're if you want to follow um, early Doctor Who stories with a really unique perspective, I'm going to put, put a little plug in here for Nathan Laws and and Juliet Vincent's uh, Time Streams podcast. Mm -hmm. um, very good discussions because Juliet is a new Who fan looking at this for the first time. And Nathan, of course, is a, an old school person who's been through this many times but um you'll love the banter you'll love the back and forth uh you'll absolutely enjoy it so uh you my friend i'm happy to plug you anywhere i can so there we go that's the keys of merriness now in october of 1980 we get a book here that happens to be i know your first book yes uh and it would be doctor who and the horns of nymon by terence dix with a cover by steve kite 3250 copies were printed and i believe it's one of the shortest books Yes. Um, so this book was part of the U.S. distribution plan, which this book was uh, in that inventory, uh, and it was sold for fifteen dollars. Uh, today, you can find this book pretty easily for about a hundred to one hundred and fifty dollars in X Library to mint condition. There are several of these floating around. I believe a hundred copies um, were in the bundles uh, inventory at one time, and a lot of them sold at Tardis Twenty Two in nineteen eighty five. I do remember. Um, that book went pretty quick. Now, that was the convention Tom Baker was not at. He was at TARDIS 21 in 84. And today, actually, I saw a picture posted in one of the groups that had the four doctors all together. It had Tom Baker, Peter Davison, Patrick Troughton, and John Pertwee. And I remember that. That was the ending of the TARDIS 21 convention. Hmm. And it was really cool to see Pertwee and Baker in the same place because you don't get to see them in the same place very often. No. And uh, it's not because they didn't like each other. They were actually very good friends. Tom Baker did not feel comfortable being with other actors who played the doctor. 
Right. He's he's over that now, but it's a little late now that he's 80, 80, 90 some odd years old. So <laughs> but um and and for me, uh let's see, going through this here, uh there's really not much else to say. Uh the the book I I you know I, I enjoyed the TV story. Actually I thought it was okay. The Nymon costumes were a bit cheesy, but um what what uh what did the club think of this? And I know this was your first one, so it was. Uh, we had Jason Miller on oh, for that one. Yes, yes. I just, uh, I was just on his last uh, episode, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and it was a really nice conversation. And we had a great argument about pizza. <laughs> of course, New York of versus course. Chicago. Of and course. So, so that, so that came up in the conversation. But he did a really nice breakdown of Destiny of the Daleks. He does his books in publication order, mm-hmm. um, and uh, just a really interesting lesson. I'll give a plug for that. It's called uh, Doctor Who Literature. To my listeners, uh, you, you'll probably hear a bumper for that one uh, in the uh, in the mix tonight. So definitely give him a listen and definitely listen to the last episode because he gets a conversation with me one on one. And he gave it he gave it a four point two five. And, and I can't remember why exactly. I know this is one of his favorite books and he's got an association with the story. That's specifically why he gave it such a high score. Mm-hmm. You're right. It is my first Doctor Who novelization. But uh, I think because of that, I gave it a 3.25. Otherwise, it's not the most stellar novelization because even Dalton only gave it a three. Mm. Okay, that's fair enough. I mean, it's 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 a short book. The um, the title, you know, the the you know for the the Skanen Empire and all that stuff here. Uh, just a yeah, it's not a not a tremendously memorable story. I do remember watching it when it came out, um, and I do remember when I got the books and. And oh, that's about that. Um, of course, I don't know what happened, but no books came out in November. So we move directly to December and we're going to close out the year with a Brian Hales novel <laughs> of the monster of Peladon um, with a cover by Steve Kite again. Uh, this book was part of the U.S. distribution plan with a price of $17, but only because we got 14 copies. So but that was everything they had. So that was left. Uh, it is unknown. Uh, let's see. Oh, no, I do know. 3,250 copies were printed, uh, but more than uh, 40,000 paperbacks were printed of this of this particular book. Uh, the Steve Kites reference for this story, by the way, uh, for the cover, uh, the Agador was from the Curse of Peladon, and the Ice Warrior is from the Seeds of Death. Hmm. So that's how he came up with this artwork here. And again, notice noting the absence of a picture of the third doctor. Again, that references an agreement that anytime you use the image of an actor, you have to pay them. So that's why they didn't do that. Uh, Tom Baker got a pretty good deal when his picture appeared on the books. He got part of that, he even got part of the copyright notice in some of the books. Ooh. So that's really quite nice. Um, the let's see, expect about $150 for this book in almost any condition. Uh, I have a copy uh, that uh, in X library condition because only 14 copies were sent to me. Sales were not good on these. So um, that's basically how that worked. Most of the, like I said, the remainder copies, whatever was left, the 14 copies they couldn't move, ended up in the United States and ended up in our catalog. And we actually had, uh, we had to turn away orders, I remember, because we had sold all of them at TARDIS 22 and people were ordering them online and we had to return their checks. Mm. I remember back, remember the days, folks, when you had to write an order out, include a check in an envelope. 
Hello, Larry from the future here. Uh, I mentioned online, which I didn't mean to say. We had no online in 1985, so it was through the mail only. Now back to the program. And mail it in. Yeah, those days are long gone. (laughs) (laughs) So what was the uh, review on this one, noting that Brian Hales is not a favorite? Well, um, Brian Hales is. Oh, That's he is. the thing. Okay. His, his prose style is. Unfortunately, this one is Terrence Dix adapting Brian Hales. Right. So you've got another remove from that good prose, and you still have the bad story. So Dalton gave it a three, which he admitted was a little high. Allison gave it a 1.5, and I gave it a 2.5 because, again, Peladon. Yeah, I couldn't be bothered. And this was not, this was actually a worse story than Curse of Peladon. Much worse. Uh, and, and, it, and it was a six-parter that was two parts too long. Mm-hmm. Um, and although I did enjoy Sarah Jane Smith in this one, um, that was the only thing I think I enjoyed about this one was uh, the fact that, you know, when they landed there, it was on purpose. And uh, the third doctor is going, King Peladon, are you still here? Not realizing he was 50 years too late and... All that stuff, but uh, definitely in bringing, and of course, this is the last time we see the Ice Warriors for a long time. Oh, yeah. uh, you won't see them again until Matt Smith's era. So, uh, just an interesting note on that. And of course, this book is on laminates, it's not a removable dust jacket. And from here on out, the remainder of books from WH Allen will be on, on laminate covers. Uh, the only thing that will change. Uh, will be the logo when we get into the later, uh, I believe the 1982 range, they changed the logo over to the neon logo. And then briefly in the 1987 uh, run, we see the, the Sylvester McCoy logo just briefly because we end this whole thing in 1988. Uh, but that wraps up the 1980 hardcovers. Um, if you want to own a set of these, uh, good luck, because I don't even have a complete set. <laughs> Nightmare of Eden, can't find it anywhere. And most of them are ex-library editions. So um, I will. I am confident that one day I will have a complete set, and when I do, I will announce it to the world. Um, but I did an estimation cost here on if you were to own a um, a set of these, and I'm going to give. I gave Nightmare of Eden, I think, a $500 t- tag just to be uh, conservative. So it's about $2,225 to own a set of these books, which is a little cheaper than previous years. Remember, Planet of the Daleks new copy sold for $2,600 by itself. So just crazy. Um, I have all but one, but again, when you're out there looking for these books, my best thing is to look for auctions that have buy it now prices. And what you can do there, it's a great trick and it works almost every time. Click add to watch list. And within one day, you'll get a break on the price Mm -hmm. because they want to move it. And Mm -hmm. they usually send that offer out to everybody who's on the watch list. And the first person to grab it gets it. So just keep an eye on that. If you have to go with a bidder, make sure that you set your ceiling. Um, a lot of times that's where you get into trouble. So if you're, you know, there, I just let go. I, I, I let a copy of Dr. Who and the Mutants walk away. It was a new copy. Uh, it was actually signed by the author, um, not a library copy. And I set my ceiling at a certain level and it went above that. And I said, well, Good luck. It's not mine. Uh, but that's, you know, that's how you got to play it. It's uh, it's kind of like uh, if you do go to Vegas, make sure you plan on what you're going to do so you can get home. <laughs> that kind of thing. 
Um, beware of high priced auctions. Don't start an auction that is priced well above where you think it should be. And uh, you can always find some titles. Uh, if you're not a big fan of eBay, you might want to try abooks.com, which is a collection of bookstores across the world. Um, and you might get lucky there. A lot of books are offered there. But again, some of them are a little higher priced. I would say watch the Facebook groups, especially the Target book group and respected sellers. Uh, my recommendations are always Dale Santos and David Russell. Always great people to work with. David Russell is out of Scotland. He has better access to some of these books and he's almost got a complete run himself, but he looks out for titles for other people. And Dale Santos out of California, he was able to locate some of these elusive USA copies that have uh, managed to float their way out to California. Um, so anyway, my special thanks, of course, to my wonderful guest, Tony Witt. And uh, this, car, this podcast is being released on Doctor Who Day on, December, on November 23rd. So a happy 59th birthday to Doctor Who. Um, and right the day before or two days before, Chicago TARDIS. So please stop by. If you're going to Chicago TARDIS, uh, Tony and I will be there. Uh, I'll be there all three days. Tony will be there at least two days, uh, possibly a third. Uh, you you know, if you see us, say hello. You know, just, uh, you know, hey, I listen. You know, we all like to hear from our listeners. I know you do, Tony. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it's, always, it's always great to somebody who comes up and says, hey, I love that episode you just did. I'm like, that's great. Or I walk around the, the convention, I hear, you know, who's Doctor Who playing on somebody's phone, and it's the opening to my podcast, which is a wonderful thing. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I really do uh, love that uh, feeling of camaraderie. So uh, join us uh, at uh, Chicago TARDIS. Tickets are still available uh, for at least general admission and some priority memberships I know are still available. Um, and, uh, of course, uh, one more time here, Tony, if you could tell everybody where to find the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast, uh, even though he is also a Direction Point Network podcast, you can always find it at directionpoint.org. But, Tony, tell them where else we can get this. Okay. You can find us on SoundCloud. All you have to do is go to soundcloud.com, and it is forward slash Doctor Who Target BC. And if you go to Facebook, we're at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all in word with no spaces. You can follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice. It sounds good. And of course, our future episodes will continue with our classic hardcovers. It'll be a little bit later on, uh, probably early uh, 2023, before we get to the 1981. And just to give you a little teaser of 1981, uh, there were five books that were included in U.S. distribution, including one that is now fetching $750. <laughs> And it was here in 1986. We had it. I still have my copy of that particular book. But uh, right now, DoctorWhoStore.com has a new copy, presumably from the same stock, <laughs> for $750. Oh. Um, you can follow us, of course, on uh, Instagram at Doctor Who Collectors to see the full cover art of all the books we talked about today. Uh, you can watch this episode on our Patreon page with a $15 subscription. I know you don't see Tony's face on this podcast, but you can hear his voice just as clear as day. And of course, you can see me showing the books. If you have any photos or proof of life of books that I have mentioned that I don't know anything about, you can email those to me at Podcast at gmail.com with hardcover photos in the subject line. So thanks again, Tony. Again, great to talk to you here. Same here. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. And stay tuned now for the most outrageous offer. We'll be right back. Mm -hmm.
Hello, fellow time travelers, and welcome to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast, the only podcast to discuss, in story order, all the Doctor Who novelizations. My name is Tony Whit, and every two weeks or so, I'm joined by a two- to three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert, who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. We also get the views of intermediate, casual, and novice fans who either have never seen the show or who have never read these books until these podcasts, including Dalton Hughes and Alison Fitzsafried. You can find us on iTunes, Stitchers, or wherever you find good podcasts, or even ones like ours. You're listening to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast on the Direction Point Podcast Network. Keep collecting! my travelings throughout the universe, I have battled against evil, against power-mad conspirators. I should have stayed here. The oldest civilization, decadent, degenerate, and rotten to the core. Power-mad conspirators, Daleks, Sontarans, Cybermen. They're still in the nursery compared to us. Ten million years of absolute power. That's what it takes to be really corrupt. And now it's time for the most outrageous offer. This is a Doctor Who item or Doctor Who related item that appears to be too, way too high to be considered a reasonable offer. And sometimes they get crazy. Uh, Today we have a a good example of one. It's not a great Doctor Who book, um, but it is a book that came out back in the, uh, back in the eighties, I believe 1985, published by W.H. Allen. It's the Doctor Who cookbook by Gary Downey. Now, Gary Downey was known for actually pestering the Doctor Who stars into giving up recipes, including, uh, I guess at one point, the story I heard was that uh, Elizabeth Sladen basically gave him something and said, please don't bother me again, and, um, you know, published a, a, a recipe. And then when I interviewed her daughter, Sadie Miller, I said, have you ever had this? And she said, nope. So we don't know what happened there. But anyway, this cookbook is being offered on Abe's Books by, a uh, let's see, the Books and Bygones in Reading United Kingdom, a seller since May 27, 1999. Uh, shipping to the United States is $12.08, and the total price here is $621.87. Uh, it says that the book is in good condition, um, hardcover. And uh, not much else to say here. It's, it says it's new, but um, and uh, nothing, nothing. In, it says it's signed by the author. So okay, that's that may be a little bit more, but not six hundred dollars. You can get a new copy of this cookbook for thirty-one dollars for as low as thirty-one dollars and sixty-nine cents, uh, up to about sixty. Uh, as far as having it signed by Gary Downey, I don't think that makes it that much more eight you know six times the price doesn't seem to work for that so uh definitely do your do your research i know i've seen a copy of this cookbook at alien entertainment too for cover price so there you go that wraps it up for the uh, outrageous offer the doctor who cookbook by carrie downey and uh you know that's the uh that's the way it goes <laughs> well that wraps it up for the doctor who collectors podcast we will see you all at chicago tardis tomorrow um and so uh thank Thank you very much to my wonderful guest, Tony Witt. We're talking uh, hardcover books from 1980. We will have him back in the uh, late winter, early spring for the 1981. In the meantime, uh, we'll have a lot of stuff coming up here, including interviews with Andrew Skilleter and Tasha Achilleos. So stay tuned and keep collecting.
checkpoint. Direct checkpoint. A Doctor Who Podcast Network.